As we approach these verses today, I want to just remind us this is a letter, (laughs) okay? This is a letter written to encourage a group of first century Christians. And the chapter and verse divisions that we've got are sometimes really helpful to help us get around and navigate and find things, but they weren't there when it was received as a letter. And sometimes that means we can read bits and forget what's gone before, particularly when we slow down like we've done the last few weeks and we just zero in on a couple of verses. We can easily forget actually the flow of what's come before in this letter. And hopefully, if you've been with us over the last weeks, months, as we've worked through Hebrews together, you will have got hold by now of the big theme of this letter, that Jesus is better. That the writer to the Hebrews, his big aim, his main focus in writing this letter was to encourage a group of Christians who may be tempted to abandon their faith, tempted to turn their back on Jesus, tempted to, in the face of severe opposition and persecution, to just back off when it came to their faith, to settle for the quiet life, to think, oh, like maybe these, who the, the first people who this letter were written to would have been from a Jewish background who'd converted to Christianity and their temptation would have been, maybe we just need to go back to Judaism. Maybe we just settle back into temple worship and the way things were, like it was... <laughs> maybe that's the way. And there were those who would have seek to convince them, like, you should do that. That would be a good thing. Get back into law-keeping as a way of trying to earn God's approval. Get back into making sure that you're ceremonially clean in order to come and worship. Get back into doing these things. And then the writer to the Hebrews wants to say over and over again, There's nothing and no one like Jesus. The freedom that is on offer in him, the life that is to be found in him is just so much better than anything else. Any attempt to make yourself acceptable to God by doing the right thing and saying the right thing and by going through all the motions won't actually cut it. It just layers you up with a burden that you cannot bear. Don't turn away from Jesus and the freedom that you have in him. And so against that backdrop, the writer has got to a point that actually for the end of us, uh, for us is in the end of chapter 10, he's restating the hope for those who trust in Jesus. And we read these words at the end of chapter 10, that yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. Who's he referring to as he writes to them? Jesus. He's, he's wanting to say to them, don't lose sight of the fact that however hard it gets, whatever opposition you face, whatever you endure in this life, Jesus, the one who's coming, will come. And he won't delay. He is coming back. 
He's coming back for his people. He's coming back to make all things new. He's coming back to wipe away every tear from every eye. He's coming back. That's the words that they would have had ringing in their ears as they jumped into chapter 11. And chapter 11, these accounts of faith that we've been looking at over these last few weeks, all have a clear future focus. These accounts of faith have a future focus, ultimately a focus on the return of Christ Jesus and what that means for those who hope in him. The writer wants us to be very clear as we read chapter 11 that faith means trusting God for the future. Yes, for tomorrow, for the next week, for the next month, but ultimately trusting him that Christ will return and will make all things new, that he will ultimately fulfill his promise. Faith impacts now. That kind of faith, confidence, the hope that we have in Christ, changes the way we live now. At any rate, it should do. Changes the way we respond to our present circumstances. Changes the way we engage with others. The conversation Johnny had this week that he just shared with us. Yet those conversations come in the light of a future hope the return of Christ and the renewal of all things. If, if he isn't coming, there's no point sharing with our colleagues. But if he is, and that hope is real and is on offer to us and those around us, then hey, changes, doesn't it? That's the kind of focus we have And that's some of what we're going to look at specifically today. We've already seen in Hebrews 11 that by faith, a future focus, Abraham trusted God and left his homeland in Ur, even though he didn't know where God was calling him to live. He trusted God with his future. As we looked at last week, Abraham continued to trust God with his future believed so steadfastly that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, that he was completely obedient, even when obedience meant being willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. He trusted. His, his eyes were on the future the fulfillment of the promise. He trusted God to do it, and God proved himself faithful. We've also read in Hebrews 11, and Dave shared with us a number of weeks ago, Abraham and his wife Sarah died without seeing the final fulfillment of the promise of God in their lives. But to the end, they looked to the future. To the end, they trusted that God had a new city, a heavenly homeland for them. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it, a new Jerusalem. Even though they couldn't see it with their eyes, and even though they didn't see it with their eyes, they trusted God for the future. 
And today we're going to see that theme and that story continue through three successive generations. So Abraham's son and his son and his son. And we see how in every case this future theme continues. So we're going to read from verse 20 to 22 and then we'll get into it together. So we read this. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. I'm going to pray and then we're going to see what those three quick snapshots might have to teach us about trusting God in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray now that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would want to show us and what you would want to speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those with hearts receptive and ready to receive what you would want to do in us this afternoon for your glory. We say, Lord, through your word, would you accomplish what you want to accomplish in our lives this afternoon? In your name we ask, Jesus. Amen. Good. Well, we begin then in verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now remember who Isaac is? Isaac is the son of Abraham. Isaac is the beginnings, the first fruits of the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. And this now refers to an event in Isaac's life that we read about in Genesis chapter 27. Isaac is a very old man at this point in history. Isaac is on his deathbed. And when we read in Genesis 27, we see that Isaac, in his old age, has lost his sight, or it's fading severely. He knows the end is coming, and he blessed his sons. Now, there's, if you read Genesis 27, we're not going to do it now, there's a whole deal that went on with Isaac's sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, and how that blessing came about. Uh, and one who by rights shouldn't have did receive it, and one who should by rights have done didn't. And we, <laughs> you can read that for yourselves another time. But actually, the writer to the Hebrews isn't particularly concerned with exactly what happened in that moment. What he wants to make clear is this. Isaac, faced with death, blessed his sons with future hope. Isaac, just like his father Abraham before him and his mother Sarah, was about to die having not yet seen the fulfillment of the promise of God. Second generation in, He, just like his parents before him, died having not seen the fulfillment of the promise. 
But in spite of that, Isaac didn't die in despair. He didn't die disillusioned and disgruntled. He didn't die in bitterness that he hadn't seen the promise fulfilled. He didn't complain and grumble at God that he hadn't yet with his own eyes seen the fulfillment of inheriting the land that God had promised them. Instead, he died in faith and blessed his sons. He was so convinced that God's promise would be fulfilled that he handed the baton on to his sons. I've I've trusted God. I'm trusting him still. And although I haven't seen it with my own eyes, I'm passing it on to you. Keep trusting him. He's going to be faithful. He's going to do it. That's the picture we have here. That's the sense of what's going on. His part in the race was run. He was so certain that God would continue to bless his family through the generations, just as he had promised his father all those years before. He hands the baton on. And then we get to read about Jacob, the next generation, Isaac's son, who received the blessing We read from verse 21, by faith Jacob, when dying, there's a theme here, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob, we read about this in Genesis 48, Jacob, we're into the next generation, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, also, as he stared death in the face, blessed the future generations concerning the promises of God. He blessed his own sons too, but here the writer references this account where he blesses his grandsons. Now this is really significant. Because if you know the story of this family and the people of God at this point in history in Genesis... His two grandsons, the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, were born in Egypt, not in the promised land. They were born in exile. They were born away from the land which God had promised to his people. But with the finish line in view, with his physical eyes failing him, Jacob's eyes of faith saw all the more clearly than ever what God had promised. And he blessed these two grandsons who had been born in exile. How improbable it seemed as they they weren't even in the land that God had promised. There's a famine, and because of that famine, they were living away from the land they should have been in. They were born in exile, and yet Jacob blessed them and brought them into the family. He made it clear. He secured them in the promise of God for his people, just like his father before him. His eyes were on the future fulfillment of the promise of God, even though he was going to die not seeing it. And he was passing on the baton just as his father before him had done and his father before him. And as he did, he died in faith. 
convinced that God would keep his promises. You know, we sang earlier, even though I don't see it, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. That captures some of the sense of what's going on here for these figures of faith that we read about in Hebrews 11. Jacob's looking around. He knows the promise and he's like, we're not even in the right place. (laughs) My grandsons have been born like really in the wrong place. But Lord, I believe that you are working and that your plans will come to fruition. I'm not going to see it with my physical eyes before I meet my death, but I know you're going to do it. Passes the baton on. Joseph picks it up. We read in verse 22, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life. So that theme is continuing. Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What's going on here? Well, Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, died in faith. How did that express itself for him? How do we know that he was trusting God for the fulfillment of his promises? Well, at this point in time, Joseph and his people were in exile in Egypt. In fact, actually within... This this is the last thing, effectively, that we read about in the book of Genesis before we get into Exodus. And we read about the nation of Israel and the people enslaved in Egypt and how that worked and how God then worked to bring about their deliverance, to bring about their coming out of Egypt and back into the land that he had promised for them. But that was a long way off. And yet Joseph was confident God was going to do it. He, like his father before him and his father before him and his father before him, didn't see the fulfillment of the promise of God. In fact, actually, at this point in time, it looked further off than ever. Like now, (laughs) like they're not even in the right land anymore. They are away from the land that God had promised to them. And yet he didn't waver in his conviction that God would be faithful to his people and that God would fulfill his promise. We read about it in Genesis chapter 50 from verse 24, and I think it is worth turning there to see what he said because I think it's quite remarkable. So we read from verse 24, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you 
and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. Joseph was so confident in the promise of God. He says to his family, guys, I know it doesn't look like it right now, but God is going to deliver us up out of this place and into the land that he's promised. I'm not still going to be alive. (laughs) But he is going to do it. So please, don't bury me here. This isn't my resting place. This was a statement of faith. He's like, this place is not my home. Don't bury me here. Promise me, when God delivers you up, that you're going to take my bones with you and bury me there. Take me home, is what he's saying. He had no doubt that God would keep his promises. These are remarkable stories of conviction in the fact that God would fulfill his promises in the face of circumstances and situations that would tell a different story. All three of these men, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, on their deathbeds were still yet to see the fulfillment of God's promise in their life. And yet they spoke about the future in confidence and faith, utterly convinced that God would do as he said he would. What we're supposed to see in these verses is that faith trusts God for the future and believes no matter how unlikely it seems that God will do what he has promised. And I think that's really, really important for us to hear and to understand. Because it's very easy to grow disillusioned when we look around. It's easy to get into despair. I can, just to be honest, right? I can look around sometimes and think, oh Lord, like, why aren't we seeing more people saved? Why aren't we seeing more people respond to the gospel? It's easy to kind of grow disheartened and frustrated. Look around at some of the things going on in the world and I think, oh Lord, this doesn't, Lord, what's going on? You know, it would have been so easy for each of these successive generations to have grown disillusioned, to begin to question, did God, did God really say that he was going to do that? I mean, you think by the time you get to Joseph and you're now away from home with no hope of return, humanly speaking, <laughs> you think they're further away from what God had promised to them then, seemingly, than they were when they started. You know, by the time we get four generations in, actually, it looks more bleak for Joseph than it did for Abraham at the start when God called him. It would be so easy to be like, nah, I don't, I'm not sure. 
I don't know if great-granddad really heard right. Like, maybe God didn't say. Like, are you sure? Like, I don't know. Just, just look around us. No one else seems to be convinced this is true. Like, maybe we're just, maybe our family, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe we're a bit deluded. It would be so easy to begin to question in that way. And I, I think it can be very easy for us, can't it? We think, like, is, is he really coming back? I mean, it's been over 2,000 years now, and like, stuff doesn't seem to be getting a lot better. And I, I don't know, there's a lot of people out there who think we're crazy. Maybe we are. It's e- it would be easy, wouldn't it, to begin to think in that way, to begin to think, are you ever going to fulfill your promises? Even when it comes to Christ's return and rescue for his people. Like, is he, is he coming back? I have the conversation with my children sometimes. So like, what do you, what do you struggle with to believe? And, and all of them, I love their honesty because I think I know so many adults who are not anywhere near as honest, right? They say, I sometimes just like struggle to believe that, that Jesus is coming back and that we're going to be with him in, in heaven forever. Because it just seems like, it, it just seems so far off. Or it seems hard to believe that. I think, yeah, well done for being honest. would have been so easy for these men to have got into that way of thinking on their deathbeds. Father Abraham is long gone. The land is still far from theirs. Descendants are not exactly numerous at this point in time. Did, did he really hear God? Is God really going to do it? But they didn't doubt. They didn't get disillusioned. They didn't grow embittered. And they didn't just throw their lot in with everyone else around them and go, ah, fine, we must have misheard. Carry on. They continued to lean in and trust God. To their death, they continued in faith. And they died in faith, confident that God would be faithful because it's who he is. is in his character. It is impossible for him to lie. So if he has said it, he will see it through to completion. They had every confidence in God and they had great cause for their confidence because they knew two great truths about God. The one I've just said is that his character is perfect. It's impeccable. It's impossible for him to lie. It would be such a a gross contradiction for God to say anything that was not absolutely true because his character is so good. Perfect. He's holy. There's no one like him. There's, There's no sense of misleading or deceit or duplicitous behavior in him. There never has been and there never will be. His character is too good for him to lie. And the other incredible truth about him is that he's 
so powerful. He has such authority that whatever he says will come to pass. He's the one who simply says, let there be. And it happens. They had every cause to be confident. And I tell you what, we have just as much cause to be confident in him as they did, for all the reasons they did, and yet actually we have even more cause for confidence than they did. We have even greater cause for confidence because we have their story and we see the way God was faithful over and over and over again to his people. But even more significantly, we see now these things through the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which secures for us our future hope. We can read in 1 Corinthians 15 about the implications of the resurrection for us. We can read from 1 Corinthians 15 that if there, if there is no resurrection, like if we're not going to be raised, then actually we're to be pitied. Like, because we've put our hope in a lie. And we're, we're hoping for something that's not going to happen if there is no resurrection from the dead. But Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, hey, but, but you know there is. <laughs> but in fact, Christ has been raised. And all who hope in him will be raised with him. This, <laughs> we don't need to be pitied. We have an incredible, secure hope. He's the first fruits. We read in Romans chapter 8 that that Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He, he was the first one to be raised from the dead. But all those who hope in him are going to be raised with him to life eternal. And incredible security, right? Christ himself is our security in that. He is our hope. We read elsewhere about him as, as like the pioneer. The firstborn the forerunner, the, the first man bodily resurrected, now eternally in the presence of the Father in heaven. We read in Hebrews 2.10 that, that he, has bought, he has made a way that many, many sons and daughters could be brought to glory. This is what Jesus has secured for us. We have confidence. What a hope. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through to 18. Hopefully this will come up on the screen. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Just, he doesn't mean they've had a big lunch and they're dozing during the sermon. <laughs> He's, when he says that, he means they're dead. We don't want you to worry about those Christians who've died. So that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ. We're used to talking about those who are alive in Christ, aren't we? But what this means is those who have died or fallen asleep, trusting in Jesus, hoping in him to save them, hoping in him to raise them to life imperishable, life eternal with the Father, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What he's saying is, hey, if you're still alive when Jesus returns, you're in for a treat. Because all those who've gone before, who've died in faith, trusting in the return of Christ, trusting in him, that they'll be with him for all eternity, they're going to be raised. They're going to be resurrected and we're going to see it. (laughs) And then we too will join him. And then for all eternity. So don't lose hope. We have incredible cause for confidence. Don't despair when you look around. He who promised is faithful. He will see it through. Our faith, just like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob's, has a future focus. Not about a piece of land in the Middle East on a renewed creation in the presence of God for all eternity. And so we, just like them, can run our race and pass the baton on to those who are going to come after us. We can pass the baton on in faith and confidence. There will be a day when a people that no man can number from every tribe and every tongue, and every race, and every tongue, and nation will gather around the throne of Jesus in worship and adoration. It's going to happen, guys. There will be a day. There will come a day when the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the water covers the oceans. There will come a day when just as God delivered the Israelites up out of Egypt, he will deliver us up finally and fully out of darkness and death and into fullness of life and light for all eternity. And I can't wait for that day. And neither can Chris. How about you? Are you longing for that day? But until it comes, or until we fall asleep, we play our part, don't we? We live with that future-sighted faith that compels us to want to hand the baton on to others. To proclaim Jesus, to push back darkness where we can, to hold fast to the hope that is ours in him, and like Joseph who said, don't, don't, don't be burying me here, guys. 
we determine not to get too settled, to not get too attached to this world. To be clear, like Joseph, this isn't home. I'm not staying here. This isn't it. I'm longing for something better. (laughs) Even when I'm dead, I'm not resting here. I'm longing for home. So I want to encourage you to live expectant for the day of his return. I want to encourage you, even when it comes to it. Like I pray that maybe for some of you, when you do approach that final day, that you have these kinds of words ringing in your ears. You want to pass the baton on to those around you. And you're not dying in despair. You're not dying disillusioned, but dying in eager expectation. Expectant for the fulfillment of the promise. Hey, you know, Christ might return while you're still alive. It might. I'm, I'm really praying he does. Like, I, I want to be, like, what a privilege it will be to be part of that generation, right? When Christ returns in glory, the trumpet sounds, and you think, oh, and every eye sees, and every ear hears, and every tongue confesses, and every knee bows and acknowledges, he's Lord, look at him, he's glorious, he's beautiful, he's worthy of worship. I, I can't wait. <laughs> but he may well not return while there's still breath in your lungs. And if he doesn't, you're in good company, actually. (laughs) Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Many, many, many generations since. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hebrews 10, verse 23, we read this great exhortation. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For what reason? The power of positive thinking? No. Because it's good to be optimistic. No. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What is that hope? It's what we've just been talking about, that he is going to return and he is going to wipe away every tear from every eye, that death will be no more, it will be swallowed up in victory, that we will be with him in his presence for all eternity, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. This is the hope to which we cling. Guys, this is the fuel for and substance of our faith. God has promised And he never, ever backs out on what he has promised. He has promised that all who hope in Christ will be with him forever. Just before we finish today, I want to offer out that hope again. I don't know all of you. Actually, I know lots of you pretty well, but I don't know all of you. 
I don't know what's going on in your heads and hearts. Maybe you're at a place today where you have believed that actually the way to God is for you to, to get yourself straightened out and live the best life you can. Just, just, just try really hard to be a good person and he'll accept you. Maybe that's the way you've thought. But we all know the reality of that is just incredible burden and insecurity. Because how do I know? How do I know if I've done enough? I'm just kind of hoping that if I try really hard, then he'll accept me. Like he'll, he'll see my heart. He'll understand. I hope. I think. You'll never be secure if that's your view. And it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is clear that every last one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us has lived up to his standard. And yet, there is forgiveness on offer. There is rescue to be found. And all it requires of us is to put our hands up and say, God, I can't do it. I need you to forgive me. I need you to save me out of my sin and mess. I need you because I can't do it on my own. I can't, I can't get there. I know I can't. But Lord, would you forgive me? And you know those who pray that, he promises that when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, make us clean, make us whole, make us holy. Because Jesus Christ died in our place. He took the punishment that we rightly deserve on himself at the cross and offers us this exchange. There's all who come to him, all who hope in him, all who come to him for forgiveness and confess their need, confess their sin. He will. He's faithful and just to forgive. His life for our death. His light for our darkness. Amazing, right? If you've never put your hope and trust in Jesus, or maybe you think, I, just to, I need to renew that again today, I want to encourage you to take a moment just now to do that. To say, God, I...